Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this morning, written by Paul, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, your Holy Spirit would encourage us, your Holy Spirit would enable us to live as your followers this day and in the weeks ahead. Amen. Well, in a world in which we live today where a high court judge pronounces that it's illegal to put prayers onto an agenda for a council meeting and where the, uh, the, the church council that meets in London has disagreements, what sort of world do we live in and uh, how should we live as followers of Christ? Well, there's a lot in this passage that we've had just read to us. But I believe that we've got two questions that we can ask of this passage this morning that Paul has written. Remember, Paul was writing to this young church in Ephesus, and he was writing to that young leader in that church. So the two questions are this. What is it that Paul thinks is the idea of the church. What's Paul's idea of the church? And secondly, how does Paul expect members of that church to actually live? So, first question. What, if you might uh, like to keep open the passage, it's on page 1193 of your Bible. So what's your image of the church? Is it a historic building or buildings? Or is it a group of people joined together? Well, Paul states this. If you look in verse 15, he says this. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, Paul is saying here, of course, that the church is living. It's not a dead body, or it ever would be. It's alive. And most importantly, it's the possession of the living God. It's not a temple to a dead God. Now, this is liberating stuff, isn't it? This is a powerful message. Remember in Paul's time, the church wouldn't have looked anything perhaps like ours today because it would be made up of small groups of believers who met in people's homes or perhaps in the Jewish temple. It certainly wouldn't have been an organisation with a hierarchy or a somewhat dubious history. No, the church in the New Testament, though it was small and quite young, Paul states it belongs to the living God. Now, because of that, it must have had some of the characteristics of that living God. It must have had life, power, and permanence through time. And if you think about it, as groups of of young believers there, that must have been a real encouragement to those people. But not only would that have encouraged them, it would have also meant that if they were members of this living church, there were requirements that they would have had to fulfill. Now Paul says the church was to be a pillar. Now to understand this we need to understand about temples 
of gods of that time. Because in those temples there were pillars. And on top of the pillars there would have been images of that god in particular or of an important person. And the idea was that the pillars stood high up and the people around could see the image of that god or famous person. Well, what Paul is saying here, the church was to declare the truth and importance of the person Jesus Christ. That was the point of the pillar. It was to show forth Jesus as the living God. And so Paul starts this passage by stating how, as members of this church, as they were to proclaim Christ, were to live. Now, in our time, of course, when the church in England seems sometimes to be confused and certainly to be under pressure from both within and without, it is good to remember that the true God, true church, is the church of the living God. A God who cares for it, a God who loves it, and Paul's teaching is still relevant and important today. So the question is then, if that is what the church is, a living body of Jesus Christ, then how are members to live? Well, we've got this image that is perhaps uh, appropriate at this time in our history. Uh, How should we live? Should we live as athletes in training? Or at worst, slightly snoozy, or actually sort of dead in our chairs? How should we live? Well, Paul says we should live in hope. We should live in hope. We should live in hope of the living God. Look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 4. Paul puts his hope in the living God who is the saviour of all mankind. And this is what is, this verse supports what is written in chapter 3, verse 16, which it seems a slightly unusual verse at this point, but in fact, it appears to be part of an ancient hymn, like a verse of a hymn or a creed. The hope of godliness is found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the saviour of all mankind. And this is the hope and faith that is required of all believers, and godliness is the way of life required. But the centrality of this faith is what's important, and what's important to Paul. The people meeting together are of one body if they adhere to this faith and this belief. Paul devotes the rest of the passage that we have in front of us this morning to examine then how these people of faith who make up the church are to live. And he starts with negatives, what to expect and what to avoid, and then goes on to positives. So we will examine each of these in the time that we've got available to us. So the negatives, what are the negatives? Well, the negatives are to avoid teaching, false teaching and false teachers. The importance of this is shown in chapter 4 by Paul's attention to it. In future, Paul warns, there will be those who will lose their faith in Christ and all that was stated in verse 16 of chapter 3 because of false teachings. 
And we shouldn't be surprised that down throughout the history of the church, we have seen this. And we should be prepared for this in our own generation. But we may well ask ourselves, well, how is this possible? Well, Paul states it's the work of the evil one. The deceiving spirits which are shown by the nature of the, by the, of the people by which this will happen. In other words, they will know that the teaching is wrong by the lives of the people that are actually doing the teaching. They are not godly lives. Paul is convinced of the evil one. And he's convinced of the influence that can be brought upon teachers within the church. He shows this in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. The false teachers pronounce that marriage is wrong and that it's wrong to eat certain foods. Now this was a, a, a reference to a, a sect, if you like, of thought that was going around at the time called Gnostic teaching. And the Gnostics held that bodily matters were very much secondary to spiritual matters and that believers should concentrate upon the spirit rather than the body. Well, Paul counters this in verse 5 by stating that God had created food for us and that marriage, as long as we acknowledge that it is God who provides and we are thankful for it. Now, of course, this is a reference to the creation account in Genesis where we read that, All of creation was good and mankind was given the right to eat animal and vegetable matter. And so this means that we are free to eat meat, vegetables, fish and marry as long as we are thankful and acknowledge the Lordship of God who provides for us in his creation. So to train for godliness, the people of the church are to avoid and not to allow these false teachers to have influence in the church. And I would like to suggest to us this morning that we would be unwise to forget the influence of the evil one upon the society in which we live and the church in which we are a part. We can see this in our situation uh, today, can't we? The need to test the teachings of theologians and uh, church leaders by the biblical word of God and as to whether they proclaim the gospel of Christ the humanity and godliness of Christ. And so we need to test what we hear. Do, do what we, does what we hear conform to what the Bible tells us? But what about the positives? What about the positive? What were the believers required and the leaders of the church in Ephesus required to do? Well, Paul writes in verse 7, Don't waste time arguing over old wives' tales and godless ideas. In other words, don't waste time and effort over ideas and stories and things that don't build up the faith in Christ. It's not an instruction not to use our mind and to question things, but the instruction is to have the authority for our ideas conforming with the word of God, as found in the scriptures. As I was thinking of this, I was thinking, could I think of a modern equivalent? Well, for me, perhaps, an example would be of some of the modern-day writings that come in the fantasy mode, the world of spirits, the New Age religion. Because Paul's words are strong here, aren't they? Have nothing to do 
with these, because all your time should be taken up with training to become godly. We understand the term training today, don't we, in our modern society. Think of those athletes who are preparing for the Olympics in the summer. Or I think of my friend Mike, and you might have similar friends, who goes to the gym several times in the week. He trains hard so that he loses weight and he remains in good physical shape. And this is tested each month by regular uh, physical uh, achievements. Well, Paul in this passage acknowledges that there is some value in this type of physical training for now. But the training for godliness is of value for now and for the future that we are to have with Christ after the death. In other words, this spiritual training is far more important because it has an eternity ring to it. We read of other references to spiritual training by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for instance, where the passage speaks of athletes in training, running to reach the end of the race. Physical training involves us using our muscles. Spiritual training uses our spiritual gifts. And Paul is encouraging them to use their spiritual gifts so that we grow to be more like Christ. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he writes to Timothy and he says, fan into flames the spiritual gift that you have been given. So Paul then is concerned for those members of the church in Ephesus. Paul is concerned for this leadership by Timothy that they develop and maintain a sound spiritual life. But how can he do this? Well, he aims, uh, he gives three priorities for Timothy to aim for. And the first priority is this, to take nourishment from God's word, by taking nourishment from God's word. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. We know that Timothy was brought up in the truths of the Jewish faith. He was also had experience of good teaching that he received from Paul and the other apostles. And that formed the basis of his life and work. And as followers of Jesus, we need, don't we, to be sure that our lives are based upon the teaching found in the Bible. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't try to understand recent concerns recent thoughts and trends and ideas that are influencing our society and our church. So just to give you two examples, for instance, within our Anglican communion, we seek to understand why the demands for women's ministry and uh, authority have arisen. We seek to try to understand why there are demands for the possibilities of same-sex marriage ceremonies in church. But however much we understand modern thought and trends, we should weigh these against God's values as shown in the Bible. And to do this, we need to absorb the teachings of the faith on a daily basis through the readings from the Bible, through the teaching of godly pastors. Timothy had a good basis on which to build. He had a sound teaching And we need to experience the same. But the second priority for Timothy was training in godliness. Training 
in godliness. Look at chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. Training in godliness has unlimited value because it gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. Training, of course, the whole word training involves work and discipline. To get up every day, to run, to work out. When I was coming to church this morning, I passed at least three joggers who were training even in these icy conditions this morning. And so training involves hard work. But for spiritual training, there will need to be work again if the passions of the flesh and sin are to be brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to know more about this, look at Paul's writing in Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. He writes in verse 16, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In other words, what he's saying is, daily discipline, living by the Holy Spirit, is the way that we can train for godliness. So the important thing for Paul and the early church was to have this training. He writes in verse 8 of its value, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. And in verse 9, it has become a trustworthy saying. In other words, it was really important for Paul that they trained in godliness. Well, the third priority for Paul was being involved in mission. Paul had put his hope in the living God who was the saviour of all mankind, especially, he writes, of those who believe in verse 10. And having been nourished by God's word, having trained in godliness, this will naturally lead to the third priority, uh, that of mission. The spiritual goal of mission because of the hope of salvation. Now the reason why this applies to all faithful Christians is because the magnitude of the task. Christ came to bring salvation to all of mankind. Well how are all of mankind to get this chance? Only by hearing the gospel message. And so Paul writes in Romans 10 verses 14 to 15, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Now, of course, we are not all called to be preachers this morning. But if we are followers of Christ, we are all sent to share the good news of Jesus to all men in whatever way we possibly can. Mission should be at the heart of all we do, think and pray if we truly believe that people will be lost in eternity without their sins having been forgiven by Jesus' death on the cross. Mission needs to be at the heart of all we do in church life, in home life and in work life. So there's a lot in this passage that we can look at this morning. It should have been an encouragement to us. The teaching that Paul brings to this young leader, Timothy, and to this young church at Ephesus. Truly, it's a message that we can take on board as a church and as individual Christians this year. Nourishment from God's word. 
making a priority to study God's word for ourselves, taking the opportunities to listen to God's word. We've got more opportunities than any other generation before us. You think of your opportunities. You can download much better sermons than mine from the net. You can listen to preachers across the world. We can read books. We can study together. We can be part of small groups, all within our church. We can train for godliness. We can be made aware of following Christ and what it actually involves. And we can be committed to spreading the gospel message to mission, both within our lives here in Norwich and further afield. So let's remember then, let's conclude with this final verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. And that's the promise that we can take as we come to our communion service later this morning. Let's it be a real encouragement as we go out into this week ahead of us. It's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is not in our economic situation. No, our hope is in the living God, who is the saviour of all mankind. Amen.